Uh, let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. I say it every week, but I say it every week for the purpose of drilling it as far down into your brain as I possibly can. All right? uh, we believe that God uses his word for a bunch of really awesome, amazing things. But the top shelf reason, the best reason of all the reasons, is that he uses his word to reveal himself to his people. All right? I say that every week because it cannot be forgotten. If you want to know God, you chase after knowing him through his revelation to you. All right? And so um, if you feel far away, it's not because like other things, it's because probably you're not reading your Bible. So go take that one and go read it, and I think that'll be the best part of my week. Like if you hear nothing else I say this week, hear that. All right. So all right, we made it now to week number five of our effort to study what's commonly called the letters to the seven churches. All right. And if you're not familiar with what those are, uh, maybe you're new to the church thing, new to the Bible. Uh, they are seven kind of mini letters uh, to seven very real congregations at the beginning of the larger letter of Revelation. All right. So seven mini letters in the larger letter, uh, and they serve as kind of an introduction uh, to that larger letter. Uh, they set the tone and the expectations uh, uh, for everything coming after them, uh, and which means that regardless of whatever interpretive pathway that you want to try to you know, walk with the rest of the book of Revelation, and there are a lot of interpretive pathways if you haven't dug into the tools that we've given you. There, there's a bunch of them. Right? Um, but whatever uh, interpretive pathway that you want to use, if you're not filtering that interpretation through the lens of these seven letters uh, to to very real first century Asian churches, well, then you're doing it wrong. Just That's as simple as I can state it. All right? You've pulled it out of its intended context and turned it into something else. All right? And so Jesus gives the apostle John a vision, and he tells him to write down everything he sees. What you see now, what you're about to see, get ready. The pen's going to move quickly. And so write down everything he sees. And the first thing that John sees is the unmatched glory of Jesus. And there's no doubt as to who is in charge. Right, there's no question about it. John reports that Jesus is standing there with a face that was shining like the sun. All right? And that his eyes were a burning fire. That his feet were like burnished bronze. This is all in chapter 1. And that there was a sword coming out of his mouth. Like, I, I don't know. Anybody feeling dumb enough to take on Jesus when he's in full glory mode? I'd pay to watch it. The other thing, though, that John sees is that King Jesus is walking amongst seven golden lampstands. And I'll admit, that sounds like a really, really confusing picture. But we're told explicitly what that picture represents, what that picture means. The lampstands represent, represent the seven churches who are receiving this letter. And so the obvious message, the very clear, unmistakable message of this picture is that Jesus is the Lord and master of these churches and that he is actively judging whether or not he wants to keep these churches around. They are either ordered, structured, and fulfilling what King Jesus expects his churches to be ordered and fulfilling and, and accomplishing, or they're not, and he's got a problem with them. So before he gets to this longer message of what he wants to, to tell them all collectively, Jesus dictates to John an initial personalized letter to each of these seven churches. And so far we've looked at three of them, right? Uh, the church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, and then last week we looked at the church at Pergamum. And while these churches are all 
kind of living and doing ministry in the same paganized Greco-Roman world, uh, there are also pretty significant differences between the three of them. Uh, they've got three very different personalities and three very nuanced ministry contexts, and they've all got different aptitudes and different weaknesses, different shortcomings. Uh, for instance, the church at Ephesus was a massive church in a massive town. Like, everybody wanted to be Ephesus. They, they, they looked at Ephesus and men, if we had that budget, if we had that many people on the membership roll, if we had that kind of influence in the city, it had strong leadership, it had good doctrine, it had tons of cultural relevance. Everybody wants to be Ephesus. But they also apparently had lost their first love. And so Jesus tells them to repent, to turn away from the direction that they were heading and to instead be obedient to Jesus. Because um, at the end of the day, good leadership, as great as that is, and healthy doctrine, as great as that is, and cultural relevance, as wonderful as that is, those are all secondary goals. They're not the primary goal. They're clearly good things. They're not barriers to loving Jesus deeply, but they, but they are downstream from what is of utmost importance, deeply loving Jesus, and which results in deeply loving each other. If, they don't, if those good things don't flow out of deeply loving Jesus, we're told that Jesus sees those things as worthless. It's a, see all we've done for you, Jesus? No, I never knew you kind of moment. But next we looked at Smyrna, right? The second church. And Smyrna, well, Smyrna wasn't like Ephesus at all. Right? It's pretty much the polar opposite of Ephesus when it comes to size and import and all those kinds of things. Smyrna was a tiny church in a tiny city and mostly overlooked unless they were getting kicked around by some form of persecution. Who wants to sign up for that church? But they had stood faithful in hardships. Hardships had come and gone, and, and they were the faithful church. And, and so Jesus really has nothing to critique in Smyrna. It doesn't mean that they didn't have any problems. It's just Jesus doesn't bring them up in the letter. But he does call them to a deeper faithfulness, even as he promises that that persecution is going to begin to increase and ramp up and become much more severe. Hey, still want to sign up for that church? But then we got to Pergamum last week. And Pergamum looks different from the first two. Pergamum was a mid-sized church in a mid-sized town full of pretense. It was all about the show. And while they had some stories that they could tell in their finer moments of past faithfulness, the cultural pressure in Smyrna to give in and just play the game was pretty intense, and it was growing more and more intense. Uh, they, would, they would never publicly deny the gospel. They would never reject Jesus outright, but they continually failed to guard themselves against trying to synchronize the gospel with a, a bunch of antithetical worldviews and practices in order to try to maintain status or maintain comfort or maintain access to something that they wanted. And so Jesus calls them to repentance as well, right? So that's three churches down. You ready to look at our fourth church this morning? See who it's written to. Verse 18. Revelation 2, verse 18. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. All right, so it's the church in Thyatira. Cool. So, so what do we know about this town? Well, not as much as we knew about Pergamum last week, but still quite a healthy bit. We actually know quite a bit about Thyatira. Unlike Pergamum and Ephesus, Thyatira was not a big town with big influence. All right? But also, unlike Smyrna, Thyatira didn't seem to be upset about being in the shadow. They liked the fact 
that they were a small town. The impression that historians often give of Thyatira is that they very much enjoyed being on the smaller side of things. You, you know any towns like that? Did you grow up in a town like that? I grew up in a town like that. They'll fight you to the nail if you want to try to change anything. But listen, in Thyatira, it's not because they really liked quiet streets and a slower way of life. No, this was all about small town politics. This is about control. See, the entire culture of Thyatira revolved around dozens of trade guilds. Trade guilds. A trade guild is like a first century version of a union for craftsmen. They'd band together, they'd set prices, establish hours, standards for their work, etc. Right? And just like unions today, they, guilds can sometimes have incredibly positive effects on an industry. They can protect the interests of, of, of a bunch of people all at the same time and help them all get a little bit better deal, right? But also, equally true, just like unions today, guilds are highly susceptible to insider politics and can quickly devolve into bullying tactics that force everyone to toe the party line or lose their ability to be a participant in the marketplace. You ever seen that play out? Hey, guess which version was playing out in Thyatira? Yeah, it's the bad one. See, out of the seven churches, Thyatira was the only one that I did not get to visit uh, when I took a trip to Turkey back uh, last November, so almost a year ago now. Uh, so I, I don't have any, any awesome pictures to show you where I got a cool face and all those kind of things. Uh, but I stole some pictures from the internet. Right? That's how it works. Can I see the pictures, Mr. Paul? So this is a map of the western part of Turkey. The circle there is uh, uh, the city where uh, Thyatira is currently located. It's a modern city called Akhisar. All right? uh, but like uh, Philadelphia, uh, there's no continuity. All right? So the Thyatira was destroyed, and then several centuries later it was rebuilt, and now there's a modern city on, on top of it. Um, and notice uh, that it's a good bit inland. right? So the, the cities that we've been talking about, like Izmir, Turkey, where Smyrna is, and then down the coast a little bit, where Ephesus was, those are like right on the coast or just a mile or two off the coast. Thyatira is way inland. All right? All right, so can I see the next picture? All right. Uh, so... Uh, so you got these other cities, those are the, kind of makes a little triangle there, and that triangle is actually important because there's trade routes there. Uh, let me see the next picture. There's pretty much nothing left of the ancient city of Thyatira. All right, so you got a bunch of houses, all kind of have the same looking roofs, small towns don't do that, right? All right? And then inside that, that small town, there's a courtyard, like a little park space, and that is all that remains of the ancient city of Thyatira. You got a little city park. Um, which is probably why I didn't get to go there, right? <laughs> not, not much to see. A little courtyard carved out of a neighborhood of houses is all there is. Let's see, let's see the next picture. All right, zoom in again. One more. Next. The next one. Yeah. So these are the, the remains of, a, of an ancient, I say ancient, of a Byzantine-era basilica, which means several hundred years after John is writing this letter. And so so there, there's no first century ruins to go and visit, no, no take a fancy picture with. We do, though, have a whole bunch, like just a ton of artifacts and written history, though, to understand what is or was going on in Thyatira. Not just in Thyatira, but in all over the ancient world. Let me see one more. So these are some coins from Thyatira, from about the time period that they would have received this letter, maybe 10, 15 years earlier. 
Um, they found tons of coins all over the place, not, not just in Thyatira, but all over uh, modern Turkey, because guess what? The stuff that was produced in Thyatira went all over modern Turkey, all over the ancient world. Um, and, and like everything that was being bought and sold in Thyatira was going everywhere else. Thyatira was known as having an incredibly strong market in several things, in wool, linen, they had tanners there, leather workers, bakers, pottery, even slave dealers. But there were two things, two things that just kind of stood above, head and shoulders above every other industry in town. Brass and bronze smiths and dyers, like linen dyers, um, garment dyers. Thyatira made weapons-grade metal that was highly valued all over the area. Uh, so armies in, in that part of the world would buy their metal to make their weapons from Thyatira. If you wanted to make a bronze statue or a brass statue, you would buy your metal like wholesale from Thyatira. Um, but there was also, not just the brass and bronze, there was also a mineral water spring in Thyatira that was just chock full of things like iron. And if you dipped your fabric in there, it would cause a specific type of discoloration. It would dye things a deep, deep purple. It would turn things a purple color, which every pastor hopes that all the good church kids in the room immediately associate with some other story that you know in the Bible. Um, If you have your physical Bible there, hold your finger in Revelation 2 and flip over to Acts chapter 16 real quick. We'll come back to Revelation. In Acts 16, verse 11, we see a story about the Apostle Paul being called to take the gospel out of Asia and into a brand new continent, into Europe, right? All right, so... um, Acts 16, verse 11, it says this. So setting sail from Troas, Troas is in the northern, northwesternmost corner of Turkey. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage, so they got on a ship, direct voyage to Samothrace. Samothrace is an island in between Turkey and mainland Greece. All right? And then following the, the following day to Neapolis. Neapolis is a port city on mainland Greece. All right? So they just sailed from the northwest corner of Turkey to mainland Greece and stopped at an island on the way. That's how that works. All right? So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi. Philippi was the big city, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. So the gospel has made it to Europe, guys. We remained in this city some days. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Ding, 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 ding. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her husband as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So as God is moving Paul to a new continent to share the gospel, he is already, and I'm hoping you've seen this in your own life, but in Paul's life, he was already working to put people in the pathway who were ready to hear the gospel. And the first person we learn about hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel is a wealthy dealer of purple garments from Thyatira. 
And I can see at least, at least, it's probably way more, but I can see at least two different kind of missions, missionary observations that we probably ought to draw out of this story. Uh, first, quite often when missionaries uh, cross cultural lines to share the gospel, their very first converts are very often, not always, but quite often, people from the similar cultures that they came out of and traveled to. And it takes a little bit longer for their target audience, target culture, to finally hear and believe. And that's still true today. When missionaries go to faraway places and cross major cultural barriers, oftentimes they, they, they don't reach their target culture as fast as they would like to, but God does allow them to reach people who have transplanted into that culture from similar cultures. And that's kind of the doorway that they walk. Missionaries have to be patient. It takes a lot of time. Paul experienced the same thing. That's good news for us. The second observation is that the pathway into the gospel taking root in Philippi and then therefore Europe as well is that someone there for a commercial reason, commercial interest, personally owned that mission as their own responsibility. And that is also still often true today. Missionaries are great. Missionaries are necessary. But oftentimes, the way that the gospel actually takes plant in a new location is that God sends missionaries, and the missionaries work with people who are there just in the community for a business interest, and then it spreads out from there. God still often uses Christian businessmen and women for incredible purpose in frontier missions. So God had already sovereignly moved and placed Lydia and her family exactly where God was sovereignly sending Paul to go and preach the gospel. It's almost like he's smart and had a plan. Not an accident. So Thyatira, just doing things, its own thing as the supplier of purple goods to the ancient world, God leveraged Thyatira's culture for his good purposes and ultimately unlocked the gate for Jesus being worshipped in a new continent. And so we know that business was big in Thyatira. And we know that the guilds ran the show. We also know that there's a church in that town. What we don't know yet is why Jesus wrote him a letter, so let's look at it. Verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. All right, so just like in several of the other letters, Jesus begins with a commendation, right? He's got some things that he wants to celebrate, and, and, and they're really good things. He says, I know your works. You love one another. You serve one another. You're patient towards one another. And who wouldn't want to be celebrated by Jesus for those exact same things, right? Like anybody not want those things said about them? Those are great things for a church to be really, really good at. And the impression that people get of the Thyatiran church, both looking back through history and apparently even in their own day and age, whether inside the church or outside the church, the impression that people get of the Thyatiran church is that they love each other. Like, way to knock it out of the park, guys. Good job. But it gets even better because Jesus says that their loving, serving, patient posture, their works are better today than they even were in the past. This church is clearly making progress on some things that they're passionate about making progress on. Like, can you just imagine what the leadership team meeting looked like for that? They sat down one day and they decided, you know, guys, I think we ought to get better at, at loving each other and serving each other. And they, they figured out a pathway to actually chase down those things and they got there. Good job. Now they can look back on those goals as success stories. And compared to the church at Ephesus, 
who had lost their first love, I don't know, Thyatira seems to be doing pretty good. But you know there's a but coming, right? There are only a couple of these seven churches that don't have a significant critique from Jesus. And well, uh, this ain't one of those couple. So look what Jesus says next in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. All right, so there are three strands, I think, that probably need to be tried to, to be tied together in here to, in order to make sense of everything. Uh, a strand from earlier that we just talked about, a strand from last week, and then a new strand that we haven't introduced yet, but it'll make a ton of sense when we get there. Um, so start, start with the strand from this morning. Right? The guilds are in charge in Thyatira. And what I mean by that is the guilds are in charge in Thyatira. All right? Nothing gets done unless the leadership of the guild says go. You oppose the guild and you suffer the consequences. And listen, those consequences need, because of everybody's edification, they need to be incredibly public so that everyone gets the lesson of what happens when you oppose the guild. You ever been in a situation like that? You used to make movies about that kind of stuff. Now, unless you forgot, this is still the first century Greco-Roman world, the dominant culture is pagan, and pagan worship is assumed to be the norm. Anyone standing outside of that would be seen as unpluralistic and unpatriotic. And so the guilds are not merely economic entities, not merely those realities. They each had a patron deity as well. A god that was attached to their guild and supposedly looked out for and blessed each of these guilds. For some of the guilds, it was the, the, their patron was the goddess Artemis, right? Uh, that's somebody that we've a false god that we've learned a lot about through our time studying uh, Ephesians and all those kinds of things. For others, it was Demeter. But by far, by a landslide, the most common patron in Thyatira was Apollo. Apollo. And to the Greek mind, Apollo was the most perfect god. The son of Zeus, who was thought to be the perfection of beauty and the perfection of youthfulness and the perfection of athleticism, the perfection of wisdom, who would give you a perfect word of judgment, you know, if you could kind of catch his attention for a moment. Make it worth his time to pay attention. But don't worry, there are, there are obvious ways to make him pay attention. And so in these guilds, the expectation, not as a side project, the expectation was that you would actively participate in the worship and celebration of your guild's patron god. Good business obviously dictates that you give a sincere nod to the god of every other guild in town. You I mean you want to keep your contacts open. Don't, don't, don't burn those bridges, man. But you better make sure that your god is in good standing. Everyone's livelihood depended on it. But we need to add last week's Strand, right? So we got the strand from this week about the guilds and being in charge. We need to add last week's strand. What, what did it mean to participate in these pagan worship services? It, it wasn't just show up somewhere. You're not just showing up to a ceremony and then you know, watching something that you don't really believe in. That's how a lot of people treat church life. That's not what was going on in the ancient world, though. We talked last week about how the, the practice of these pagan worship services would involve temple prostitutes and feasts dedicated to those gods, eating in honor of those gods and celebration of those gods, things that Christians simply cannot participate in. 
It was impossible to escape worship in Pergamum, remember? Worship of pagan gods, worship of the empire, worship of the intellect, worship of your own body. And in Pergamum last week, we saw that there was an ever-present temptation to try and disconnect belief from practice. Right? To act like you could play the game and keep a foot in both worlds. Uh, they never outright deny the gospel, just relativize it into something that you know, didn't get in the way of the other things you wanted to chase after in life. And so some folks crept into the church there who seemed to argue that it was, you know, it's okay to do so. The, the soul and the body, the, the body and the spirit, they're not really as connected as what some people like to believe. And so you go and enjoy. You do and have fun. What is done in the body can't hurt you spiritually. That was the argument from last week. Caused loads of problems in Pergamum. But that's not exactly what's going on here in Thyatira. We need to add a third strand to think about. Jesus points to a woman in the church that he calls Jezebel. Now, that's not her actual name because no one is dumb enough to start naming their kids Jezebel anymore. That's not her name. But it is what Jesus calls her. And it's a name that God's people are supposed to fill with depths of meaning every time they hear it. Assumed meaning. If you're new to the Bible, the story of Jezebel happens in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings. And her story is the reason why nobody gives their kid that name anymore. Jezebel was the wicked queen of one of Israel's most incompetent kings, King Ahab. So fun couple, right? Jezebel was the daughter of the priest king of Tyre, right? a neighboring pagan nation of Israel. That shouldn't have been there if they had done their job in uh, Joshua, right? right so, uh, this wicked kingdom has a wicked king and he's got a daughter and they make a political alliance marriage with Israel. Think that's going to end well? Not at all. He worshiped the false god Baal. This king murdered his own brother uh, to ascend to the throne. So he's a nice guy too, right? He gave his daughter to Israel's prince Ahab in order to form an alliance, which I'm sure like, you could start to see the problems emerging in the story. And so when Jezebel and Ahab got married, Jezebel moved to Israel, and she brought literally hundreds, hundreds of priests and, and prophets of the false god Baal with her to Israel to move in. This is going really, really bad, right? Problems are amplifying. But then to finally push it over the edge, though, King Ahab was a weak self-pitying man who abdicated his authority to lead and gave it to his bride. And because Ahab didn't have a backbone, Jezebel was permitted to run, run amok in Israel. She set up a bunch of altars to false gods, Baal, Asherah, others. She ordered the execution of every faithful priest and prophet in the kingdom. The ones that did escape managed to escape by hiding in caves for a few years. Israel was a grand old place. God's people. The, the, the theocracy of Israel. God's prophets have to live in the cave so they don't get murdered. When Ahab wanted to buy a vineyard next door to the palace, and the guy who owned that field said he couldn't sell it because I mean, God, God gave a command about uh, uh, land being held on for inheritance. And so literally the guy was trying not to break God's law something that King Ahab should have been doing. Ahab is told no, and so he goes back to his palace to pout about it. Jezebel got tired of hearing him whine, and so she has that first guy framed and executed so Ahab could just seize the property for himself. 
What a lovely queen. Show of hands, who wants to go on a double date with Ahab and Jezebel? And so speaking to the Thyatiran church about a woman who was a self-proclaimed prophetess, Jesus calls her Jezebel. And he means every single ounce of what God's people remember about that story. Every ounce of it. The abdication of leadership by those who are supposed to be in charge has allowed someone with no business being there at all, let alone being in charge, to rise up and lead God's people into deeper and deeper grotesque sin. That's what's going on in Thyatira. Sin of idolatry, sin of sexual immorality, but this isn't the the same as Pergamum. In Pergamum, there was an illogical disconnect between body and spirit. There was an attempt to justify and argue that that these things aren't connected so they don't actually matter. Uh, There was a a pretentious acknowledgement in Pergamum of what is good and holy, and then an opening of the back door once that acknowledgement had been publicly made. Yeah, do this, but then also allow this. But that's not what's going on in in Thyatira. What we see in Thyatira is a a wholesale rejection of what is good and holy sitting right out in the open. There's no deception here. There's no back door. There's no hidden agenda. Someone in the church who claims to have a higher revelation than what was previously given to this church is now openly teaching that what was previously forbidden now ought to be embraced and celebrated. And what's worse... I think it's way worse is that absolutely no one in this church is willing to stop it. Leadership or otherwise. It seems that the Thyatira's problem is actually the exact opposite of Ephesus. Ephesus had strong leaders, healthy doctrine, but they lacked love, right? You can probably imagine how that went badly on a few occasions. They, they, they lacked the, the tenor and the posture and the approach to, to handle fixing the problems with the love that it required. And so Jesus rightly calls them out in their letter. But in Thyatira, that, it seems that their great love had morphed into an inability among their leaders to step in and protect when it was clearly time to step in and protect. Like Ahab, they lacked a backbone and had abdicated their responsibility to lead. And whether they were scared of whoever this woman and her followers were, or maybe they just justified it all in their heads as trying to extend love and and service and patience towards her, whatever the case, the the inaction had, uh, had, had permitted the false prophet to continue running amok and leading the rest of the church into deeper and deeper grotesque sin. A Jezebel figure didn't just suddenly appear out of nowhere in Thyatira. It was one step after the next, after the next, and testing the waters, and that's permitted, and so I'll take another step. Failing to guard what was of critical importance to guard. Now, if this were one of the other six letters, at this moment in the, in the crescendo... Jesus would turn a corner and tell the church at Thyatira how to fix the problem. Um, But there's something going on in the text here that we haven't spent any time talking about in this series. Uh, These these seven letters are are in what's called a chiastic structure. So think of a pyramid. Um, There's an A, B, C, D, C, B, A structure to the whole thing. Um, And this is the fourth letter. 
which means we're at the D level, the, the top of the pyramid. There's something special going on in this specific letter. And so not only is this the longest of the seven letters, but Jesus is going to, I think, begin including, folding in some pictures here that he's intentionally going to revisit later on in this letter of Revelation. Um, Look at verse 21 with me. Jesus says this, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto, her, uh, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Verse 23, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. All right, so Jesus says some things here that seem, at least to me, to point well beyond a single woman in a single church. And the first part of that is that the timeline for repentance has already come and gone, right? No matter how wicked her sin was, and it was pretty wicked, I think we could all come to a place where we would argue that no one is too far gone to be past repentance. There's still time. The arm of the Lord is not too short for her to repent of her sins and follow Jesus and then undo the terrible things that she had done. Like, that's possible with individual people. So clearly, we're dealing with something deeper than just personal sin issues here. Jesus seems to be talking more about the spirit of her teaching in this moment than the actual sin. And then there's this line about more and more people choosing to lay down with her. It seems like we're not talking about individual acts of sin, but rather the spread and the infiltration of that sin into others. And that's definitely what seems to be in view here when Jesus talks about striking her children dead. I'm pretty sure he's not talking about biological children produced through her adultery. But those who are becoming her followers turning around and repeating the lie, repeating the false gospel, genuinely buying into the false gospel that she is propagating. So what do we do with this, right? Well, those of you who have been reading ahead in Revelation, you might have come across some of these pictures being repeated in other places. A tribulation, a great suffering. In chapter 12, Jesus, or John talks about a, a woman and a dragon. In chapter 17, he talks about a great prostitute and a beast. And those are massive, absolutely massive apocalyptic images that clearly have a ton of stuff wrapped up into them. I get that. Uh, but, but questions do emerge, right? Like, are those things the same thing? Are they two tellings of the same exact reality? Are they two different moments altogether? There's a bunch of opinions floating around out there about that stuff. But what is clear, what ought to be crystal clear to us, is that even as Jesus is speaking to a local church with local problems, he seems to already begin tipping his cards as to how he is going to deal with the same problems on the cosmic level. Everything coming down the pipe, Jesus is already kind of telegraphing how he's going to handle it. He does not change. His attention is not divided, whether now or in the days to come. Those who want to cast in their lot with false gospels and false gods will receive the same just response from him. What's that response? It says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and gives according to their work. See, the threat on all of these churches, whether the seven in these letters or outside of these letters, the threat on all these churches that Jesus will symbolically remove their lampstand and they will cease to be a church if they don't repent and return to him. But there's no call to repent here. 
There's no call to repentance in this letter. And he promises that that judgment will be so severe that no one, absolutely no one, will misunderstand it. Does that mean that everybody in in Thyatira is guilty of all this nonsense? No, actually. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. All right, so Jesus turns his attention to the faithful, right? This loving, serving, patient church, sometimes to a fault, right? but rightly celebrated by Jesus. He says, to the rest of you who haven't bought into this wicked teaching, hang on. Hold fast until I get there. I, I know it's a whirlwind. I know you feel like you're in over your head. I get it, but I'm on my way. Now, I highly doubt, highly doubt that the false prophetess in Thyatira is calling her teachings the deep things of Satan. Seems a little counterintuitive to me, not the best PR. That's precisely what Jesus calls it. So it's a fitting title. But it's also something that I think, I don't know, I think a lot of people probably have watched play out in other contexts. If you've got any kind of history in a, in a Thyatiran kind of church, you can probably point to some things that were said, held up as truth, maybe even suggested to be a, a deeper, more mature Christian way. And then when you actually looked for evidence of that claim in the scriptures, you found that there wasn't any. You ever been in a situation like that? I've sat in situations like that. Happens in churches all the time. See, the reality is that heresy is almost always put forward by people who think that they're fixing Christian doctrine. It's just the truth. It's a more mature way. It's, it's for those who have actually you know, figured out all of these things. And so Jesus says that what's being taught in Thyatira may be publicly labeled as some deeper understanding of spiritual things, but it's got a much, much, much darker source. As a general rule for life, uh, run away from things that present themselves as some kind of higher, enlightened version of regular Christian understanding. Right? Can I just lovingly give that to you this morning? Just run far away. Make no mistake, Christian maturity is something that we all ought to be chasing after. It is an unalloyed good thing, but uh, we want to leverage ourselves in every way possible to help you get towards depth of maturity. But as soon as it turns into you know, unlocking a code to understanding the Bible, or praying a specific prayer so you can corner God into doing something you want him to do. Or achieving physical health by, I don't know, following the detailed diet plan of some Old Testament prophet in exile. You probably stepped over the touchline. The deep things of God are not complex. They're just not. They're not veiled. Our God delights. He delights in making himself known. There are are limits to our ability to comprehend them. Absolutely. Our sin is a limit. Our creatureliness is a limit. But he is not hiding. And Jesus tells the faithful remaining in Thyatira, those who have resisted and and not bought into the lie, uh, that true maturity looks like a celebration of debauchery. He tells them that he will come soon and he will make all things right. And so in verse 26, he says this, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority to the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. 
And I will give to him the morning star. Who has an ear, uh, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So verses 26 and 27 there um, are an intentional paraphrase of Psalm 2. All right, if, you, if you're not familiar with Psalm 2, uh, if you've never read it, it, it is a psalm that is means it's probably as heavy as a psalm can on messianic prophecy. Even as the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, as Psalm 2 opens up, the one with a capital O who is seated on the throne is not moved by their raging. He is not undone by worry. He is not undone by planning. He is not undone by distraction. He is not made any less sovereign by those who would scheme to remove him from his throne. And one day, with a capital D, the infinitely righteous and good king will bring perfect and forever justice upon all wannabe usurpers. In Psalm 2, that sovereign authority clearly belongs to what is called a begotten son. But here in Revelation 2, the son says he is pleased to share his authority with those who belong to him. He invites them to reign along with him. So, who is this son? Well, what's our cheat code in these letters? How Jesus introduces himself, right? So back up to verse 18, what does he say? The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. In a city full of self-proclaimed prophetesses hawking sexual sin, in a city full of heavy-handed trade guilds uh, kind of forcing everybody uh, to tow the pagan line and make sacrifices to Apollo, the most perfect son of Zeus, right, who will pay attention to your problem if you sweeten the deal well enough, Jesus stops, steps onto the scene, and he declares that the true son of God has arrived. He's never not been aware of what's going on. He's always paying attention. and In fact, he's more than ready to pronounce his perfect judgment on all wannabe usurpers who would scheme to remove him from his throne. But that's not all he stands ready to give. He also promises to give the morning star to those who conquer. So, so what does that mean? Well, this is a perfect moment to use our check downs, right? Whenever, whenever we're staring at something in apocalyptic literature, we're not sure what it means. We ought to resist the urge to, to make wild claims about you know, worldwide nation states and barcodes on your forehead. In the same way that a rookie quarterback should not throw the bomb, neither should you. So we discipline ourselves to go through the checkdowns, right? So option one, or question one. Does John explain what the image is in this text? And, and in this case, the answer is no. Okay, question two then. Does John explain this image anywhere else in this letter? And yes, he does. Absolutely he does. Revelation twenty two sixteen, Towards the very end of the letter, Jesus calls himself the bright morning star. So regardless of any other meanings that might get folded into this title, here's what we can be absolutely certain of. Jesus says that those who stand faithful to the end will get him. They'll get him. They will know him and be known by him. They will, not be, they will not only be sustained by him, but sit with him on his throne and rule along with him forever. So there's an obvious question to answer this morning. Does that sound like something you want? Is, is choosing to stand faithful in order to get more and more and more of Jesus later an automatic yes for you? You know the reason why false prophetesses had an audience for her teaching? It's because there were people in Thyatira who would rather have her teaching than Jesus. It's just the truth. Otherwise, she wouldn't have any followers. You know why Apollo continued to receive sacrifices from guilds down at the temple, even from a bunch of people who publicly claimed to be Christians but didn't want to be there? It's because staying on the good side of the guild leadership was more attractive than faithfulness to Jesus. But Jesus says that there are those who will conquer and those who won't. 
There'll be some who have ears to hear and some who won't. So follower of Jesus, what about you? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's another song. I'll be down front if you want to talk. But listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, um, can you respond to God's word? The answer is absolutely yes. You can do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all by default separated relationally from God and that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. That, that, sin is, that punishment is death, a rod of iron. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that he makes us alive again by his grace through Christ. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither of us can live, but he lived it and successfully, and he died on the cross as an innocent Savior uh, to, to pay the debt of our sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And you can do that this morning. I'd love to be helpful to you. We can talk. Or maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, whether it's by formally joining our church family or by uh, being obedient to Jesus in baptism. Or maybe it's time to say yes publicly to some call he's placed on your life to take the gospel far away from here. Think he's pre- preparing the pathway before you get there? I bet he is. I'd love to help you think through that process. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a letter in Revelation. Oh God, guard us from not just letting falsehood creep in through the back door. Guard us from an open embracing of falsehood as some kind of nonsense version of a higher way. We need your truth. We need eyes to see. We need ears to hear. So guard us from that. We love you. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Call people into your kingdom. Uh, make it a Lydian experience, I guess. In Jesus' name we pray.